This is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. Those of you who may be new to our podcast, I am an associate professor of surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I'm the director of the Burn Center, and my practice is uh, uh, limited that to uh, uh, critical care and, and providing a lot of burn care. We use this podcast as a way of educating our house staff and fellows, and uh, has been uh, really met with a lot of popularity, not only around the United States, but around the world, of people who want to talk about topics uh, relative to critical care. The topic that I want to talk about today is hyperglycemia in the intensive care unit. This is a topic that seems to be getting a lot of mileage, um, certainly at meetings as well as critical care journals, and it's not a topic that's really new to people who uh, take care of uh, uh, critically injured burn patients. Um, a lot of what we do in caring for the burn patient is control of their metabolism, and we've learned um, perhaps decades ago that our patients, the, the burn victim, does better when we control um, hyperglycemia as well as controlling their anabolism and catabolism. The the Center for Disease Control estimate that are roughly 18.2 million people, uh, or roughly 6.3% of our population, have diabetes in the United States. About 41 million people are estimated to have uh, a state of pre-diabetes, and this is estimated to have an economic impact in both direct and indirect costs five years ago in 2002 of roughly 132 billion dollars. It is clear that the prevalence of diabetes in the United States is increasing, but our control of this disease is clearly deteriorating. Roughly 4 million people are diagnosed with diabetes or admitted to the hospital uh, in the United States each year, and roughly 12.4% of all hospital discharges have diabetes listed as a diagnosis. People with diabetes can be hospitalized for problems of life-threatening acute metabolic complications, uncontrolled diabetes, things like diabetic ketoacidosis. Children and adolescents are frequently admitted to the hospital as they're worked up and started on the, their new regimen as diabetics. People are admitted to the hospital for gestational diabetes as well as some of the chronic complications. A lot of the focus that we are going to apply today is not so much the diabetic, but it could be the non-diabetic who is experiencing hyperglycemia while in the intensive care unit uh, or in the post-operative period. If you look at patients uh, with hyperglycemia, hyperglycemia occurs in roughly 38% of patients admitted to the hospital. Now, 26% of these have a known history of diabetes, but 12% had no history of diabetes. Patients who have a newly discovered hyperglycemia have a higher in-hospital mortality rate, of roughly 16%, compared to patients who have a history of diabetes, or 3%. And then the patient is normal glycemic with a mortality rate of 1.7%. Patients who have hyperglycemia have longer hospital uh, stays, higher admission rates to intensive care units. And the source of this is a, a Journal of uh, Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism in 2002. What I think we need to focus on, at least for the sake of this discussion, is hyperglycemia, but not in the diabetic. Uh, we focus too much on the diabetic, and what we really need to put is perhaps more emphasis on the non-diabetic. Hyperglycemia with or without the diagnosis of diabetes results in an increased mortality, increased admission to the intensive care unit, and overall poor outcomes. And this has been demonstrated in numerous controlled prospective observational studies um, that hyperglycemia has increased mortality, length of stay, 
Patients who are hospitalized with hyperglycemia have worse outcomes in diseases such as acute myocardial infarction, not only the critically ill patients, but also patients with neurological disorders such as ischemic strokes. There's a study by M. Perez, I've already uh, said it's in Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, 2002, Volume 87, and they looked at hyperglycemia increasing hospital mortality rate. They looked at 2,030 consecutive adult patients, uh, and they were analyzed for the presence of hyperglycemia and any association of poor hospital outcomes. New hyperglycemia was associated at the mortality rate of 16% compared to 3% and 1.7% for patients who had a history of diabetes or normal hyperglycemia. So hyperglycemia in the absence of diabetes had almost a five times higher mortality rate. The mortality rate was significantly higher for patients with new hyperglycemia regardless of whether they were admitted to the ICU. Mortality rates are 10% for non-ICU patients and with new hyperglycemia and 31% for the ICU patients. Bulk and colleagues in the Journal of uh, um, International Journal of Cardiology in 2001. Okay, so this is not new material. This is 2001. This is data that's at least seven years old. It was published in 2001. Probably was around and edited for a year before it got published. They had a prospective study of 300 and 36 patients who were admitted to the hospital with an acute MI. And patients were stratified with respect to admission plasma glucose levels. A one-year follow-up from that study showed that patients with diabetes had worse outcome for mortality, say 45 or 44%, than those who had severe and uh, uh, impaired glucose tolerance. And looking at this 336 patients of people who were admitted to the acute MI, a multivariate analysis in that group showed that admission glucose levels and diabetes were independent predictors of mortality, whereas the infarction size was not. So let me repeat that. Patient comes admitted to the hospital. They have diabetes. Oh, you look at their glucose levels. Their status of diabetes and their glucose levels are more of a predictor of outcome than the size of their myocardial infarction. Let's change the disease from myocardial infarction and now look at acute ischemic stroke. This is an article by uh, Williams in the Journal of Neurology, 2002. Again, not a new study, and I'm trying to keep the studies a little bit older because these have certainly had an opportunity to have adequate peer review. But they looked at a study of 656 patients who were hospitalized with an acute ischemic stroke and were analyzed by mortality risk, length of hospital stay, discharge to home, and inpatient hospital expenses. Patients whose blood glucose level was greater than 130 had significant longer hospital stays, higher 30-day mortality, and a one-year higher one-year mortality rate. The 30-day mortality for somebody who's uh, with a stroke and their blood emitting blood glucose was less than 130. They had a 30-day mortality, excuse me, an in-hospital mortality of 5% where those whose blood glucose level uh, at greater than 130 had a um, in-hospital mortality of 7%. Now, that was not statistically significant, but when you get down to 30-day mortality, uh, those with a uh, normal blood sugar had a, uh, a mortality of 30 days of 5%. Those who had the hyperglycemia had a 30-day mortality of 10%, and that was significant at the 0.01 level. Well, why is this? Well, the exact mechanisms of how hyperglycemia affects poor outcomes is not completely understood, but both in vitro and animal studies have shown that hyperglycemia affects the immune system. It certainly affects mediators of inflammation, the vascular responses, and both brain cell responses. Immunosuppression, you have increased rate of infection and impaired wound healing. 
Now, if you imagine a patient who's had a colectomy with an anastomosis, certainly the idea of giving somebody a bolus of steroids would make any surgeon cringe because the first thing they're going to think of is their anastomosis leaking or failing, and certainly the rate of wound infections. But hyperglycemia in those patients will cause similar types of adverse events. It appears to be uh, mediated through uh, several possible mechanisms, uh, including uh, reduced phagocytosis as well as uh, uh, reduced function of PMNs and reduced granulocyte adherence. You have increased risk of thrombosis and platelet aggregation. We looked at increased cytokine, increased cytokine levels and in inflammation. And when we think about this for a second, it used to be thought of that when we looked at intensive care units, there were really uh, a portion of the hospital or a clinical laboratory that really focused on optimizing oxygen delivery to uh, organs and tissues that were uh, in stress or shock with poor oxygen delivery. Now, a lot of a large portion of what happens in the intensive care units is to mediate inflammation. When we look at septics, sepsis and septic shock, um, um, I kind of make that akin to somebody falling out of the plane. It's not the fall that kills you, but it's the sudden stop. A lot of times when people are dying of complications of sepsis or septic shock, it's not the actual bacteremia or the pneumonia that kills them, but the body's response to that, how the body aggravates uh, or excuse me, upregulates the inflammatory cascade uh, to that. And clearly, hyperglycemia uh, appears to increase cytokine expression and inflammation, something that we spend a great deal of time actually trying to decrease. Now, we've already hinted at the idea that mortality after MIs is reduced after ins- uh, insulin therapy. Mom and colleagues in the British Medical Journal in 1997 published this. Um, they studied the short-term and long-term effects of uh, intensive insulin treatment of patients with diabetes who were controlled in the trial at the time of the MI. They had 620 subjects were randomized to conventional therapy, um, basically uh, treatment of their blood sugar at the discretion of their physicians or an IV infusion of insulin uh, and glucose for 48 hours following uh, a multi-dose subcutaneous insulin regimen. The mean follow-up was 3.4 years. The mortality rate was 44% in the conventional treated group compared to 33% in the intensive treatment group. The absolute reduction of mortality in the intensive treatment group was 11%. What this translates into that one life is saved for every nine patients. Benefits were even greater for those patients who had not previously taken insulin and were uh, considered to be low cardiovascular risk. The absolute reduction in mortality in that group was 15%. Let's look at cardiac surgical patients. In um, the Journal of uh, Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery in 2003, this is an article by Funeray, and they looked at patients with diabetes, and they had 35, over 3,500 patients uh, who underwent a coronary bypass, and they had strict glycemic control using subcutaneous insulin, and they were looking at the period between 1987 and 1991 versus continuous insulin therapy from the years of 1992 to 2001. Now, there's a lot of things that can uh, act as uh, contributing factors. When you look at that second period, there was a lot of progression in, in not only cardiovascular disease and surgical therapy, but also critical care. Those with the highest glucose levels, though, in that study had the highest mortality rate, and that's at roughly 14.5%. The mortality was significantly higher for patients with glucose levels at 175, and that was significant 
at the uh, P level of uh, 0.01. Now, when I was a resident, we didn't even consider uh, even being concerned about blood sugars until the blood sugar was in excess of 250, and then the nurses would call and we'd give a sliding scale insulin and give somebody all of two or three units of insulin. Now, here's some here's a study that shows an improvement in uh, mortality when we keep the blood sugar less than 175, and we're going to continue to look at studies. And if you were to look at those studies, what you would see is in the actual data results is you see an exponential increase in mortality as you go uh, up um, um, in your um, average glucose uh, um, in your average glucose uh, levels in groups. If you looked at the mortality rate all comers for blood sugars less than 150, the mortality rate for cardiac-related mortality is roughly 0.9%. When you got to the 150, 175, you're at 1.3%. Now, there's no statistical difference between those groups, between the 0.9 and 1.3. But once you start going above that 1 point, that 175 um, glucose level, you see the mortality rate start jumping up. So 175 to 200, mortality rate is 2.3%. Between 200 and 225, it doubles up to 4.1%. From 225 to 250, 6%. Now keep in mind, in the day, we didn't even worry about blood sugars that were less than 250. And then once you get above 250, you see a jump in the mortality rate of almost 14.5%. So clearly keeping your control down, at least at the level of less than 175, we see improve, a significant improvement in uh, mortality. And of course there's the, the famous Vandenberg study in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001. And this was a prospective randomized controlled study. And they enrolled 1,548 patients to receive either a standard or intensive glycemic treatment after entry into the intensive care unit. Now, in the intensive treatment group, blood glucose levels were maintained between 80 and 110 milligrams per deciliter while in the intensive care unit. After discharge from the ICU, blood glucose levels were maintained between 180 and 200. Once is once they're on the floor. Now, conventional treatment group was initiated if the blood glucose level got above 215. Now, once they triggered that blood sugar of greater than 215, the blood glucose was then maintained between 180 and 200, but still, still less than what we use to classically keep the blood sugar at less than 250. Now, what they found in that study was that for every 20 milligrams per deciliter increase in the blood glucose, the risk of death was increased by 30%. So let's say that again, for every 20 increase in the um, blood glucose level, the risk of death was increased by 30%. For patients in the ICU, mortality rate was significantly reduced with the glycemic control, which was 4.6% compared to the conventional treatment group of 8%. So there you see that significant reduction. So uh, mortality rate, um, IC, glucose control 4.6, conventional 8%. In-hospital mortality was uh, reduced by 34% for those in the glycemic control. Survival analysis uh, revealed a significant difference in mortality between the intensive glycemic control group and the conventional treatment group. And aside from looking at things such as um, mortality, you saw benefits in regards to bloodstream infections, acute renal failure, transfusions, as well as polyneuropathy. It's a 46% reduction in bloodstream infections, a 50% reduction in red cell transfusions, a 41% reduction in acute renal failure. Now, there was a study by Fernery and colleagues. It was an endocrine um, 2004, and it looked at the uh, uh, 
was a 17-year prospect of non-randomized interventional study involving over 4,800 patients. It was looking at the benefit of IV insulin treatment following coronary artery bypass grafting. They tried to maintain a target blood sugar of less than 150, and they saw um, a reduction of uh, risks of death decreased by 57% and a reduction of deep sternal wound infections by 66%. Significant level for both these was at point zero 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 one. We've learned that uh, deep sternal wound infection rates in cardiac surgery patients are directly related to increasing postoperative glucose levels. The rate of deep sternal wound infections was reduced by 66% in this study to a rate equal to that of the non-diabetic population. Target glucose levels of less than 150 in a three-day postoperative duration of continuous insulin therapy are both important variables that determine the effect of uh, continuous insulin that improves outcomes, particularly in this very large study. Fernery and colleagues did a study in the annals of thoracic surgery in 1999. It was a prospective study, and they involved 2,400 patients in this, and they had a control group who received sliding scale intermittent insulin versus a group that had continuous IV insulin infusions to maintain blood glucose levels of less than 200. So this is much different than the Vandenberg study where they were looking at 80 to 110. Here we're still looking at blood sugars of less than 200. And on post-op day one and two, um, a deep sternal wound infection was significantly greater in patients who with a higher post-operative glucose levels. Um, the tight glycemic control resulted in a two-and-a-half-fold decrease in deep sternal wound infections compared to those who received a sliding scale intermittent insulin. Now, when we think of uh, IV insulin uh, and its common indications in the hospital, we're typically thinking about people who are in the intensive care unit or cardiac care unit, people who have diabetic ketoacidosis or non-ketotic hyperosmolar coma, both preoperative and intraoperative, as well as postoperative care, organ transplants, MI, cardiogenic shock, critically ill patients. Uh, IV insulin really has a half-life of about seven or eight minutes. Now, intensive diabetes therapy in a hospital setting must be guided by both frequent and accurate blood glucose data. Now, the bedside glucometer is preferred over laboratory testing because you can get the results turned around rapidly, and the point-of-care testing can really uh, close the loop on therapeutic decision-making. However, you need to be aware that there are specific limitations in these bedside glucometers. Well, what are some of the sources of the analytical error? Well, a low hematocrit something you don't typically see in a surgical ICU or a trauma ICU. Just being a little bit uh, facetious there, but a low hematocrit can result in an erroneous blood glucose level, as well as a high hematocrit, which is something we will typically see in burn ICUs in patients who get admitted uh, rather dehydrated. Shock and states of dehydration, again, something typically seen, uh, uh, potentially seen in an intensive care unit. Hypoxia, again, another mitigating factor that um, patients who are going to be critically ill are going to have hyperbilirubinemia, um, as well as certain medications. Now, there are sources of user error, not calibrating the, the meter correctly, inadequate quality control, test strip does not match the coder or a test strip that's expired. So there are sources uh, that we need to be very careful and mindful of that can result in erroneous results. There are a variety of uh, systems and protocols out there that will determine how to um, maintain tight uh, glycemic control in the intensive care unit. There's no prospective data uh, that makes one better than another. People get very religious uh, about these different protocols. Um, and uh, again, that's just a lot of bias, but not a whole lot of science. 
an ideal feature of uh, infusion methods, you really want to maintain blood glucose effectively within with um, within your target range with minimal hypoglycemic risk. Uh, hypoglycemic risk, you want it to be adaptable to all the hospital units. You want to have stability and responsiveness that are easily prescribed and implemented. Uh, protocol should take out the current blood glucose level, the rate of glycemic change, as well as current uh, infusion levels. How do you make an insulin drip? Well, you typically want to use regular insulin and mix it in almost saline in a ratio of 1 to 1. So typically 250 units and 250 milliliters in normal saline. You can do it 0.5 to 1, like 125 units and 250 normal saline. Um, Something a lot of people are concerned about are hypoglycemia. It's not something that should be ignored. It's not something that should be brushed under the carpet. Um, a lot of patients in intensive care units now are on beta blockers. We have a lot of um, um, data that suggests that cardiovascular risk can be mitigated in high-risk surgical patients by the use of beta blockers. Beta blockers are also being used in other units uh, as a, a tool to help uh, slow catabolism down. Um, but if you look at the white label or the, the big drug information sheet that comes in with your beta blockers, one of the warnings you'll see in there is hypoglycemic unawareness. And think about this, is that what are the signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia and how are they manifested? Well, typically we'll say that a hypoglycemic is what? They're tachycardic, they're diaphoretic, they have this sense of impending doom, uh, anxiety. Well, how, how do they present those symptoms? How are they manifested? Well, they're catecholamine-mediated, requiring what? adrenergic receptors. When we block those receptors, we're basically blocking the, abilities respond, the, the body's ability to demonstrate a hypoglycemic response. So a patient can um, uh, start the trend towards hypoglycemia and not show a lot of those early signs because of the use of beta blockers. The other situation may be uh, a patient who's sedated in an intensive care unit. They may not be able to manifest signs of anxiety uh, or some of that fidgetiness because of the level of sedation, and they may have hypoglycemia um, for um, maybe an hour, maybe two, uh, until uh, the next glucose is obtained. Is 80 to 110 restrictive and perhaps too restrictive and even dangerous? Uh, we're seeing studies beginning to come out uh, that uh, maybe we don't need to be 80 to 110. If we looked at the studies that we quoted earlier, we saw beneficial effects when the blood sugar was less than 175 uh, or certainly less than 150. We know that we see uh, glycosylation of proteins at the level of 150. So do we get an incremental increase uh, of benefit to a patient by keeping them uh, 80 to 110 versus, say, uh, 80 to 150? Do we see that much of a dramatic uh, improvement in outcomes? And, and in my opinion, I think we, that's still... Um, the jury is still out on that, particularly when we look at the negative uh, factors of hypoglycemia. But one thing is certainly certain, and that are gone are the days that when I was a resident, and a lot of us were residents, that we ignore a blood sugar of greater than 200, or we ignore a blood sugar until it gets to 250. This is the, the data that we're presenting here is five, six, seven years old. You cannot open up any journal. I got a journal of trauma uh, just today. This is looking at September journal of trauma. And uh, one of the lead articles in here um, is looking at uh, poor outcomes in trauma patients. Um, Non-infectious related, but... Um, it's an article by Sperry and colleagues. Early hyperglycemia predicts multiple organ failure and mortality, but not infection. So, again, um, a lot of data suggesting that hyperglycemia left unchecked will result in worse outcomes. 
Now, there was an article in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in December of 2005, and they actually looked at the relationship of hypoglycemia. And in their paper, they show that uh, pa- patients, um, both diabetic patients and uh, control patients who were allowed to get hypoglycemic had mortality rates that actually exceeded those patients who um, uh, were allowed to have their blood sugars run in excess of 200. And what the authors concluded from that paper was that, it, uh, and I'm going to quote here, that, it, quote, achieving glycemic control in diabetic patients below 200 after cardiac surgery has been reported to result in fewer postoperative complications and better survival without the added risk of hypoglycemia. However, uh, aggressive glycemic control below 110 has been found to increase the frequency of hypoglycemic episodes. Hypoglycemia has been shown to have deleterious effects in hospitalized patients. In fact, we observed high mortality associated with hyperglycemia in critical illness in the control group without insulin exposure. The incidence of adverse neurological and or cardiac sequela from hypoglycemia related um, to a perturbation of the metabolism or insulin exposure and critical illness and subsequent clinical outcome need further study. And this is from Mayo Clinic of December 2005. So, you know, as Aristotle said, all things in moderation. How we maintain that, we said there's a variety of ways of doing that. Actually, in our unit, we'll actually use some subcutaneous insulin, taking care of burn patients. Infusion of pumps are uh, very difficult things to maintain. So what we will do is we will try to convert the patient over to subcutaneous insulin. Now, many of you may have a problem with this, and in subcutaneous insulin, we can't use subcutaneous medicines in intensive care units that will create a depot. Well, we use subcutaneous medicines every day, and that is uh, the use of Lovenox for uh, um, prophylaxis against deep venous thrombosis. We we see that it does work uh, and it is effective. Now, if we have a patient who is not critically um, ill on vasopressors, then that's a person that we'll actually consider adding long-acting insulins for. Keep in mind that if you allow somebody's blood sugar to get elevated, uh, then you're putting your patient in these groups who have the elevated blood sugar. And it's like having a glass of paint on your desk. You know, you don't want that paint to spill. You want to keep the, the paint in the glass. Once you've created the problem of hyperglycemia, then you're kind of being reactionary to it. Um, I remember as an intern getting called and somebody's blood sugar is 120 and getting called in the morning is, do I want that patient to get their morning insulin? Well, of course I do because I need to have that insulin there for the cells to metabolize. To have a car filled with gas but no fuel pump does the car engine no good. Uh, and, and you need insulin to uh, have the cells be able to take glucose. Now what we will do is frequently use Lantus uh, as a long-acting insulin um, so that we can actually mimic uh, the insulin drip and get away from the infusions uh, because maintaining lines uh, in burn patients is certainly very complicated. So if somebody's getting 100 units of IV insulin over a 24-hour period, we will typically give that patient 50 of Lantus. Um, Lantus has a 24-hour half-life, which makes it very convenient for a surgeon uh, because I can do that math pretty easily in my head. Um, 24 units over 24 hours means the patient's getting equivalent to an insulin drip at one unit per hour. Um, if that patient needs... Um, 
Um, 48 units or 50 units of insulin is roughly their their 50% requirements, then they're going to get what? They're going to get 48 units of insulin in the form of Lantus Q-Day. A lot of times if the patient has enteroenteral feeding tube in the stomach, uh, we will only give them 50% of their insulin requirements um, in the form of Lantus because if we're interrupting feeds or procedures. Uh, this is conservative because some areas of the literature will say that you can give as high as 80%. If we have a post-pyloric feeding tube, and we're not going to be able to. We're not going to have to interrupt feedings. Then we will go up to that 80% of uh, feeds. Does this seem perhaps heresy? Well, when we think about uh, pharmacokinetics, the pharmacokinetics of whether I give this IV in an insulin drip for 24 hours or I give Atlantis as a single dose for 24 hours, as far as the cells are concerned. They don't see a difference. If I'm treating something, if somebody has a pneumonia and I'm giving them uh, like 750 of levoquin PO, pharmacokinetics of that is basically the same whether I give it IV or enteral, as long as the bowel is working. If somebody has a gram-positive infection uh, and uh, skin and soft tissue, I could give them vancomycin and do all the rigmarole of getting a central line in and a pick line and make sure that I'm giving uh, their levels and watching their renal function and so forth. Or or I can give them a pill of Zyvox and, and basically give a medication very strong at IV levels by giving it orally. We're getting the same physiological effect um, of giving somebody once daily injection of the long-acting Lantus, and we try to get them off of the pump. There are several problems with sliding scales, and, and the reason why I'm really not a big fan of sliding scales and, and giving people a lot of R and not giving them a basal level of insulin because it's just not physiological. When you think about the aggressive sliding, uh, the sliding scale regimens that we would use in the old days, or perhaps that are still out there, it typically starts with two units of insulin and glucose for blood sugar between 200 and 250. Well, we've shown in this this talk that blood sugars of greater than 150 and 175, we start to see increased rates of infections and mortality. So we've let the cat out of the bag in that regard. And then we get real aggressive for every 50 increase in the blood sugar. We may throw another two units of subcutaneous insulin. Other problems with... um uh, insulin, a sliding scale insulin is it's based on a single blood glucose level and it does not take into account potential rapid changes in blood glucose that may occur in hospitalized patients. Now think about the the physiology of this is that if somebody's got a blood sugar, you got a blood sugar at noon and it's 250, how long has it been above those numbers of 150 to 175? One hour, two hours, three hours, maybe four hours. And then what do you do? You end up giving them sub-QR. And if you look at the, when you start to see the peak of giving somebody R, it's typically within two hours. So their blood sugar may get out of that threshold of what I consider safe. I do my blood sugar at noon. That blood sugar may have breached the threshold of safe, say, at 9, 30, 10 o'clock. I give my R at noon, and then I wait for the peak for two hours. I'll be letting somebody sit hyperglycemic for a period of four, maybe even five hours. And this is contributing to that hyperglycemia. So we would like to give a basal insulin level, a basal uh, level of insulin, because one, that's the way our body works, and we're trying to be proactive, not reactionary. We're only correcting the dose of insulin only after the hyperglycemia has occurred by using sliding scale insulin. And typically using SSIs, we provide no basal insulin to prevent the fluctuation in blood glucose levels. Um, due to lap, lack of physiological dosing of insulin, patients are at risk for these wide fluctuations in blood glucose levels that may exacerbate hyperglycemia and increase the risk of hypoglycemia. In a study by, uh, um, I'm going to 
kill this name, but uh, Quelle or Quell, and I, if you're listening to this, I am sorry. Archives of Internal Medicine in 1997. Patients were three times more likely to experience hyperglycemia with either conservative or aggressive sliding scale insulin regimens. The other problem with sliding scale insulin regimens is Joint Commission doesn't like them. And the Joint Commission doesn't like them. Nobody likes them. And I think over the next couple of years with a lot of Joint Commission evaluations, we're going to see uh, sliding scale insulins really go away. And though we we grind our teeth about regulatory agents like the Joint Commission, they actually do provide a very positive function in really forcing us to adapt our practices. And again, when you look at regular insulin, onset of action about 30 to 60 minutes Peak is at 2 to 4 hours, and duration of action is 6 to 10 hours. When you're using a glargenine or lantus, you're looking at a peak of 1 to 2 hours. There is no, excuse me, onset of action is 1 to 2 hours. There is no peak. It is flat pharmacokinetics and lasts 24 hours, which makes the math for a knuckle-dragging surgeon like myself very easy. If my patient requires 100 units of insulin over a 24-hour period, what I do is I will uh, give them 50% of that in the form of lantus. The next day, I should have 50 units of insulin that I can keep incrementally going up on that lantus until I can get the patient well-controlled and maybe on a little bit of a sliding scale to, to cover me when I have uh, problems uh, with it getting a little bit high. Uh, but I can easily get over to a basal dosing of insulin. So in summary, I'd like you to consider that if you're still just trying to cover people with sliding scale insulins uh, in the post-operative period or in a patient in an intensive care unit and not really worrying about that blood sugar than 200 to 250, those days are gone. They're gone. The, the data does not support continuing to do that. We're not talking about data with, with publication numbers of 2006, 2007. We're talking about publications that go back to the 90s. And we just continue to see people, you know, pile on the pile on if you may uh, but this is not something that's new okay there is a um, there is certainly evidence to show that your patient is going to have a worse outcome be it an MI be it a stroke patient be it a post-operative patient be it a cardiac surgical patient a patient will do better if we control the blood sugar now at what level is the real debate and I think that's where we're going to see the literature continue to try to pound this out the Vandenberg study looked at 80 between 110 uh, in the first study um, is that too restrictive? Uh, it may be. It may be that we're having too many lows, and there's something called a therapeutic index uh, of any medication, and that is does the ri- what's the risk-benefit ratio using a therapeutic index. What are the benefits by maintaining somebody up to 80 to 110 over keeping them from, say, uh, 80 to 140? Is there that much benefit that justifies the risks of the hypoglycemia? And on that, I think the jury is still out. Uh, we are a little bit different in that we will actually use long-acting basal insulins in the form of lanthus because of the very simple 24-hour way that it's dosed without any peaks makes it very surgeon-friendly. Um, shoot, they'll even let me write the, the, the medication with a crayon. Um, so that's the other consideration uh, as far as... Um, um, management of uh, hyperglycemia in the surgical patient. My name is Jeff Guy. Um, the website uh, that I maintain a lot of this material on is www.burndoc.com. This is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. The, uh, the blog page for this is uh, uh, surgeryicrounds.com. My name is Jeff Guy. Have a nice day.